Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Oscar So White still relevant? Deconstructing how this year's awards did and didn't break the mold. Is the 2019 American Girl Dolls Girl of the Year a throwback to an old-fashioned image? And it's the Atlanta Jackknife and the Philly Fast Backward, roller skating styles highlighted in a new documentary about black roller skating culture. It's our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, before state lotteries created the Daily Double and Mega Millions, many gamblers placed their bets in an underground game of chance called The Numbers. Pretty much any African-American over a certain age has heard of or knows about, knows someone who played the numbers. That's how ubiquitous they have been in black communities, even though they've been underground. Author Bridgette M. Davis reveals her remarkable mother's life in her new book, The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Callie. And Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me, Callie. I'm so glad to have you all back around the table. Let's dive right into the Oscars, so white or kind of brown or a little bit mixed. Where are we? <laughs> yeah, people keep touting this as a lot of diversity on display in terms of who won. I would note that uh, even Rami Malek, the guy who uh, won for uh, the Queen biography, in his acceptance speech noted that he was the Egyptian kid and an immigrant and felt very strongly that he was proud to be representational, that he was representing also Freddie Mercury, who was also an immigrant. And a lot of uh, presenters were persons of color. Did it do it for you? Did it make Oscar so white not as relevant because of that display? Well, I think it was a big year. I mean, you mentioned Remy Malik Beecher, the costume designer for Black Panther. Mm-hmm. It was the first time a black woman, I think, had won a non-acting Oscar in quite some time. So there were several firsts. And just in general, when you look at the nominees, there were uh, some people who don't usually get recognized. Uh, black Panther was nominated for a couple, right? Spike Lee. Of course, the Roma film broke new ground in all kinds of ways. Um, but there were still some some pretty serious issues, especially with the winners in particular. Uh, the fact that uh, Mahershala Ali won for supporting rather than best when the movie was about his character. <laughs> I'm not sure how the movie is, is about the character and you get the supporting but not the lead. And, and then there were some other, you know, issues with the fact that Green Book won in general showed a certain tone deafness with respect to the state of racial politics today. And and I think women were still pretty underrepresented as a whole when it came to um, uh, the nominees and the winners. So so there was some progress, uh, but uh, we still have a long way to go for sure. Uh, Rachel, before you speak, let me uh, play a clip of this is Spike Lee reacting. This is after um, the awards, and we know that Green Book has won. 
I'm snake bit. I mean, every time somebody's driving somebody, I lose. <laughs> but they, they, they changed the seating arrangement. Of course, that's Spike Lee, um, whose film Black Klansman was overlooked again. Uh, last time that happened, he had Do the Right Thing and Driving Miss Daisy one. So that was his comments referred to. Yes, and I appreciate everything you said, Michael, but I think I, I sort of saw two different problems. One is, okay, they can have this display and say, hey, you guys, you're getting lots of Oscars, but we need this to take place over a stretch of years, right, to think that they've actually stopped, mm. you know, because mm-hmm. this is just, otherwise this is just some kind of quick performance, and if they go right back to only giving Oscars to white people, then... You know, we, we haven't exactly made progress, right? And then the other thing is that it's fascinating. It, well, Michael sort of pointed this out, but then you have to sort of look at what the people who won Oscars actually did. Mm-hmm. So with actors, mm-hmm. what role were they playing? You know, with other people, what role were they playing? So I think it's a very complicated, messy situation that there is something uplifting about what happened. We do need to find things that are uplifting in, as I often quote from Dylan's movie, Masked and Anonymous, we are living in a tawdry and vulgar age, right? So I'm like, okay, yay, this is progress. But, and I don't know, Spike Lee like pointed out the thing about, you know, that, that what they actually gave one to. And we're going to talk about it, I hope. But I also have incredibly mixed feelings about Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Say them? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. yes. <laughs> well, there's two things that summarize the problems for me. One is that it is set in African countries, and there's a white CIA agent who's a hero. Mm-hmm. That just is like canceling out horrifying history, right? The CIA, like when countries were reaching for their independence and establishing their own leaders, the CIA often like made plans to kill them. Like the one that leaps to mind to me is Patrice Lumumba. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is just really called attention to me is that the movie is called The Black Panther. And the guy who is actually somewhat like our Black Panthers is the villain of the movie. Right? No, nothing white, nothing systemic, but the Black Panther. Michael Jordan's role. Michael Jordan's character, killer. Killmonger, actually. Right. He's a killer. Mm -hmm. And he he gets killed Mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, it's like particularly underscored by the fact that the movie is titled Black Panther Mm -hmm. because this was an organization of people, you know. I mean, they're not perfect, but like they were really working hard to push back. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they did things like, you know, open soup kitchens to feed kids. So... All right. You, you want to add to that? Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I could walk down the Black Panther <laughs> road and, and, and sort of go off track here. But one thing I will say about, in particular, the Killmonger character was he was actually viewed, I think, by some fans as sort of the hero of the film in many ways, even though he becomes kind of this tragic figure at the end. So though the film, I think, was written in kind of a, a saccharine way to portray him as more of a villain, when fans received it, that mm. wasn't necessarily the way all fans interpreted his role. So there was some room for interpretation mm. there. Uh, on the Oscars thing, again, I think two things are going on, right? One, we've seen greater representation in terms of the faces in front of us on the screen, and that was a huge part of the campaign. We've also seen changes in the Academy itself. When the Oscar So White campaign started, the Academy was about 8% people of color, and now it's more on the order of 16%. Yes, so so the right. Academy has changed its composition slowly but surely. 
I think part of the issue with who won the awards is related to the politics of the day. And part of it is just being in touch with moviegoers. So the frustrations with Green Book were clear. They've made these missteps before when they gave the award to Driving Miss Daisy, as Spike Lee talked about, and when they gave the award to uh, Crash was another one, Mm -hmm. right? These films of racial reconciliation where there's kind of a both sides empathy going on between white bigotry and folks who uh, are are suffering from racism, black people who are suffering from racism. That kind of both sidesism is not healthy and it's not correct. And we need to do away with it as part of our political discourse. So there's a mistake there. But the other thing, almost politics aside, when we look back at who won the Oscars this year, like were people really talking about Bohemian Rhapsody in the streets? Like when you went to mm-hmm. cocktail parties, yeah, were you talking point. about Green Book? No, Mm-mm. right? You were talking about except Black I'm not going to see it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thing you were right. yeah. So I think there's a scene. There's a, there are some indications that, and I'm not knocking Bohemian Rhapsody, which I actually saw and was a fine fine movie. The music is fantastic, mm-hmm. but I think there's a broader conversation to be had about whether they're actually in touch with people who are still going to the movies. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in touch with those people, then what are you actually doing with these? Awards, right? It becomes a very insular, elitist, and almost less culturally relevant when you're sort of out of touch with what people really care about. So I would say two things. First of all, if you think about it as Peter Farrelly, um, who was the director, and I, I don't think producer, but director on Green Book, has said many times, and he's right, they meant for the story to be about the chauffeur. Mm-hmm. The, now, the ads and the fact that Dr. Shirley was quite a great figure left one to believe it was something else again, and there was mm-hmm. an equal story to tell. Mm-hmm. So in the marketing of it and in the way that I think they wanted it to come out to the audience, that's why people, I think, reacted. Maybe if they were just straight out from the beginning said, you know what, this is a story about the white guy mm-hmm. and the black guy is just riding. Right. Maybe we'd have a different response to it. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just putting that forward as a possibility because that's the thing that I find very irritating. And also that the fact that the movie is named The Green Book and they don't really talk to you about the significance of what that meant to black families during the, the time of Jim Crow segregation. So to all listeners, if you don't know what that is, I don't have time to explain it, but it's important (laughs) that you know about it because it was significant (laughs) history. (laughs) That's just an interesting uh, point to me. I also want to just point out something else. In some of the other categories that we don't often pay attention to, like animated feature, Mm -hmm. Peter Ramsey, first uh, black director to win Best Animated Feature, and that was for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which his Spider-Man is Afro-Latino. And it's just a great thing. Here's, let's listen to a clip so people understand that there's a difference in the way that he portrays it. It centers around a young Afro-Latina boy, and you can hear Spanish being spoken clearly and without subtitles. Papa! Llamame. See you Friday. Okay, mommy. Hasta luego. Oh, look who's back. Yo, what's going on, bro? Hey, I'm just walking by. How you doing? Seguro que sí. So in addition, again, that was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Domi Shi's Bao won an Oscar for Best Animated Short, and that was, oh my God, a beautiful little film that if you went to see The Incredibles, you saw, which was just about a very small story between a mother and her child, but it was all told from an Asian perspective. So those two things, to me, said that there are some of the stories that we would hope to see making it through, but they don't get as much attention as some of the blockbusters. And I feel particularly strongly about the Mm Spider-Man because if you think about it, you know, you're saying who has the power, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not 
literal. It's like who has social power in the United States? Who's a monster? Who has power? Mm -hmm. Like conversations that those comics host, those animated versions in the movies. And so this was extremely, I think, like really noteworthy to say. It's sort of giving power to people whose first language is Spanish. and. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. Did you want to come? No, no, I, yeah. I agree. I also think it's interesting that both of those animated films are obviously kids. Yeah, oh, right? interesting. Yeah. Kids, yeah. kids driven and kids focused. Mm. So the Academy is sort of paying some homage and recognizing not only that children are part of the audience for the Oscars, which they are. I mean, how many of us were watching with our parents when we were younger and are watching with our kids now? Um, but also acknowledging that there is a, a very kind of serious high level of skill that's involved and required to make these animated films, right? So sort of holding up the artistry of animation. Of course, they've had these awards for a while, but I think it does call attention to the artistry of animation. And many times these industries are often animation in particular, has been closed off to people from underrepresented groups for a long time. And finally, with regard to the Oscars, and I'm, I'm done here, I just wanted to point out, Michael, because this is at the heart of your book, five people that were very prominent at the uh, Oscars, because it was hostless, but as presenters, were two guys that played Wayne's World on Saturday Night Live, and then Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, and Maya Rudolph mm-hmm. from Saturday Night Live. Yep. So here we have Saturday Night Live, which is a television program with a great amount of influence in terms of presenters, rather, at the Oscars, which is the golden road to feature film. I think that's interesting. And you've written a book about comedy and its influence and and diversity. So what's your comment about that? Oh, no question. I mean, I think it was significant when the three women came out and and sort of opened the show, right? It was significant that they were were there in the outset. And many people wanted them to be the host. But of course, Kevin Hart, right? All this is happening in the aftermath of the Kevin Hart controversy. So they want to have a comedian who has that kind of charisma to kind of carry the show. And there were some issues, obviously, with Hart and his politics that prevented him from serving as host this year. So they went to something that could kind of bridge the gap between comedy and a more serious artistic appraisal. But it does kind of call our attention to the way Saturday Night Live is is in many ways kind of the standard of high culture comedy, right? It's like that's the pinnacle. It's such that they're able to bridge these gaps between the Academy and more popular forms of entertainment. It's pretty interesting. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and here with me are UMass Boston Professor of American Studies, Rachel Rubin, and Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, Michael Jeffries. We're discussing the latest pop culture stories you might have missed. Moving on from the Oscars, another film, a documentary getting a lot of attention, hadn't even aired yet, except for critics out at the Sundance Festival, is Leaving Neverland. This is a four-hour documentary um, featuring two now men who were young boys who claimed that Michael Jackson abused them on a consistent basis uh, when they were young boys. It's getting a lot of pushback from the family. The family is very angry about it and says these accusations about Michael have been refuted over and over and over again. Of course, he's dead now and can't, can't respond. But I wanted to give a listen to Leaving Neverland director Dan Reed, and he's defending the forthcoming documentary about its alleged one-sidedness in his first televised interview about the film on CBS Morning News. Did you not think it was necessary to hear from members of his family or his lawyers to react specifically to Wade and James? Well, this, this, this isn't a film about Michael Jackson. It's a film about Wade Robson and James Safechuck, two little boys who, you know, to whom this dreadful thing happened long ago. And it's the story of their coming to terms with that over two decades. 
So that, again, was Dan Reed, uh, the director of Leaving Neverland. I just want to point out that one critic, this is Matt Zoller, cites from Vulture.com, says that the graphic description of, as these boys talk about it in the film, is described in such detail, he says, that viewers may be seized by a new impulse to look away from what they're hearing. Michael. This is a devastating account. I mean, I've read only bits and pieces of the descriptions that you're talking about, and it really is just horrifying to to read some of the details. I think we've got to take a step back and look at this in the context of the Me Too movement, and then more recently in the context of the docuseries put together by Dream Hampton, as a black woman journalist, about R. Kelly and the impact that that has had on R. Kelly's career and, and fans' kind of memory of and relationship with him. So this is all occurring in a context where accusations and allegations of this nature are being taken more seriously, and survivors' voices are being elevated to the space that they should have really for the first time, I think, in, in certainly in my lifetime, and I think for many generations prior. The interesting thing with the Jackson case is, look, the director said, I think rightly so, that this is a film about the two victims rather than the family. I think another thing we should keep in mind is the family's been the one shaping this narrative up until this point. So these claims that the, that Jackson and his family haven't had any chance to refute this are sort of disingenuous because they've been the ones dominating the conversation either via mm-hmm. silence or with direct refutations and, and settlements for decades. So I think that's a kind of a disingenuous critique. The other thing that we have to discuss here is the gender of the victims, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is a case where we're dealing with issues of same-sex attraction, we're dealing with issues of pedophilia, and we're dealing with it among men and boys. Mm-hmm. And these are conversations that uh, we don't often have in popular culture, regardless of the race of the perpetrator. And Michael Jackson's status as a, icon. an icon <laughs> of black American culture, mm-hmm. global blackness in many ways, and American culture, someone who, for reasons both uh, troubling and not so troubling, was able to bridge racial gaps, adds another kind of inflection point to the dimension. So we've never really seen a story like this, even though we have the Me Too story as backdrop. This is going to add a whole new layer of conversation. Rachel? Yes. No, I do think, I mean, I think part of the layer is that we're evolving about this as a culture. I could name so many celebrities who have done things like that, you know, including ones I care deeply about. Michael Jackson actually is one of those. But you could go way, 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 way back. 60s rock and roll artists. There are many of them who had sex with way underage Mm. people, right? And at that time, it was just like part of being a celebrity. And so I think I'm really glad this this film is coming out, even if it'll break my heart in multiple directions. But I think that it's very important for us to look at this, like not as individual cases, but as a systemic problem with mm. the culture of celebrity, because you like get to this point where you think you can do everything, right, and get away with it. And actually, that has been true up to this point. I mean, think about it. I mean, there are just so many people who have done it, and it hasn't bothered them at all. And so now if we're trying to attend to this, because it's like been this established thing. I mean, I really, sometimes I think, what if I had a list of every musical celebrity who has had sex with somebody underage? I just don't even want to know, because who would I be able to listen to then? Mm. You know, it really hurts. But I do think that there is this cultural shift that's happening. There are definitely other people who have been accused of sleeping with boys, but especially if you stack this up against all this stuff coming out about the Vatican, 
right. Mm. Yes. And, that's and a, can well, I add mm, one thing to this? Boys and girls. Mm. That's all, all I'm saying. Is so we're, yeah, yeah, I'll stop in just a second. Yeah. But I'm just saying that it, it's like it's a great like case study. It's small, but to, if we contextualize it all, then A, it gets even more depressing. But B, there are ways it's a little uplifting because there is a sort of growing pushback. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I wanted to say, just sort of in, in response to your comments, Rachel, is one of the issues here that we're having trouble with is we need to be able to call this rape. Mm. This is mm-hmm. not just sex with underage people, mm. sex with people who are on the verge of consenting. In some cases, of, of being of consensual age. And even if they are on the verge of consensual age, that doesn't matter either. It's still rape. In the R. Kelly case, these are 14-year-old girls we're mm. talking about. In the mm. Michael Jackson case, these are what? seven, eight-year-old boys yeah. we're talking about. Consent is nowhere in the, in the same universe nowhere. as what's going on nowhere. here. So, so part of what, we're do, what we do, I think, when we talk about, as, as you rightly said, the power of celebrity is our language sort of romanticizes what, what these relationships could, could possibly be because we know that we, not, not all of us, but many people worship these people and have some aspiration to be in their world, whatever that might mean. But, but we can't allow that kind of language to, to distort the conversation about what's actually happening here. These, this is a predatory, violent act. That's what this is. This is rape. This is not, cons- this is not uh, just sex with underage people. And there's one thing about it that does make me a little bit anxious, and I'm really happy for all of the attention paid to it. I'm thinking about Bill Cosby at the time. One thing that has to happen is we have to go after sexually abusive celebrities who aren't just black who aren't just black men, in fact, because in the United States, we do have this history of the scary black man. And yet when it comes to celebrity sexual abuse, there are so many white men who do it too. So I don't want R. Kelly and Michael Jackson, say, to be like the most famous cases because they're not, right? They're not the worst. Um, That's all. I'm just saying we need to stitch it in carefully to that social conversation. That's why I mentioned one before. But, you know, it goes all the way back. It goes like the earliest celebrity conversation. I mean, celebrity culture, right? You know, Jerry Lee Lewis married his 14-year-old cousin. That's just one example that leaps to mind. But they are current examples of white celebrities doing the same thing. And I would just like us to look across the board. I wanted to just put a button on this and say the bigger conversation is going to continue to be we, the audience, that made excuses for this behavior because they're talented in whatever way they are. That's going to circle back around, and we're going to be more self-examination in that way as well. Uh, Let me move on to something that is a little bit more uplifting, and that's uh, a documentary that's going to be, that is on HBO now called United Skates. Uh, John Legend, the singer, is the executive producer. Two young women are followed these black skaters around the country to do a whole piece about black roller skating culture. Here is a clip from it. This is United United Skates. As you go across the country, you'll find it's a really thriving rink. It's because they have a really strong African-American skate community. It was a place where the streets, everybody met up. Everything was underground at some point in time. When jazz first came out, everybody was like, okay, wait a minute, I don't know what's going on. You don't understand the culture, you push it away. 
I just love this because um, I remember some of those rinks. They're, they're closing now, and they've actually captured a moment in time. But here's an interesting way of talking about history from a fascinating perspective, Michael. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and that's what I'm interested to see in the documentary is, are they using this sort of cultural phenomenon to tell a broader story about Black urban life in the time period, right? I think that's what it, what's going to be especially interesting in it for me. The other thing that always kind of comes to mind when these movies come out is like how many of these spaces that were sort of underground, like Hush Harbor, like sort of very protected or almost enclosed black cultural spaces are now receiving this attention through documentaries or movies and really being sold to audiences, certainly black audiences first and foremost, but other audiences that might not have any idea about them um, are, are going to see them for the first time. And on the one hand, I think it's a, a celebration of black culture and I'm excited to see it. I think especially folks in my family from previous generations <laughs> will be excited to see it. But on the other hand, like I wonder how much more farming of, of <laughs> the hushed harbors of black culture are, are we going to see and aren't going to do, right? I mean, that, that's the other thing that I'm always uh, a, little, a bit leery of when these movies come out. But it looks great, and, and I'm glad John Legend is attached to it. It'll get some attention. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree with both parts of that. It looks fascinating. It looks really like a combination. It's a great historical approach, right? And so we do have to see then how, as we say, that approach is operationalized by many people. Who's going to get what out of it? Mm. So there is that. And I'll just add another thing I like very much about it is that one thing that sort of breaks my heart right now when I ride the subway to work and so on is there is much less collective culture mm. than there used to be. Because of people's headphones, they're just like sort of cut off too much. Mm. And so when there are things like this, like cultural formations that bring people together, it's really, really, really uplifting for me. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Under the Radar pop culture contributors Rachel Rubin and Michael Jeffries. We're talking about the pop culture stories you need to know. Well, here's one I didn't really want to know, but I'm fascinated by. The newest American Girl doll, um, as is described by one critic, is one part Reed Drummond, one part Ina Garden, and one part Joanna Gaines. You may know those names as two um, sort of self-made chefs and one homemaking design queen based in Texas. Uh, the new doll is Blair. She's set in these times. Um, she lives in upstate New York and does sustainable farming. Another critic called her the whitest American girl doll that he'd ever seen. I I'm just fascinated by this, Rachel, because in the past, you can complain about their being expensive and all of that. They've tried to have a story from history that made the doll sort of stand apart. W what message are we to get from Blair? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, sort of the message I got is like a, one step before that, and that is these messages are to the parents, mm. right? Because the little girls, they aren't going to know who these people are, and even if their parents tell them, they're still going to want to play with the dolls the way they play with the dolls. So I sort of see this as like a kind of um, advertising, just like to get the parents to say this is, you know, a good doll. Mm. I ha and yeah. kind of modern because of the sustainable farming. It's kind of modern yeah. because of sustainable farming. But I, what if you say that to like a three-year-old? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. You know, that. I mean, so it's a little bit confusing with dolls. Okay. You know, there are certain things that, you know, this doll's white. I'm yeah. just saying if the doll wasn't white in a variety, you know, and there are lots of options for that, then that will kind of register with little kids, right? Okay, Sus I, did, I got you. But sustainable, far and, but sustainable farming, ah, ah, 
Okay. I don't Michael. Even, I, I really think if you, like, went on the subway and asked most people what a sustainable farming is, they aren't necessarily going to know. Three years old or not. Michael. So this is a strategy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to add to that. It, <laughs> it does seem a little bit like, uh, like a little bit of a stretch, given what we know about the other dolls from the series. Many times when American Doll is, American Girl, is it, is, yeah. is in the news, it's yeah. because they're offering a more diverse range of stories. So that the, is true. The, the criticism of this being, like the whitest doll ever or whatever it is. I, I understand it, but in the context of everything else the company has done, I, I, I think it's maybe a little bit harsh because they have kind of made some moves in the right direction. I don't know what to make. I think you're probably right. This is more for the parents than, than for the kids. Well, okay. I guess she could be a little bit more girl next door if they were going to do it. But, you know, sustainable farm feels a little much for me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And I like a sustainable farmer. No no, no shade on sustainable farmers. <laughs> I'm eating your vegetables and loving it. Uh, um, finally, uh, this blackface fashion that has keeps popping up everywhere. We got the Gucci with the sweater. We have the tags, you know, from Prada. Zara, aside from, from blackface, did a Holocaust one with yellow stars. I mean, what is happening? As as one of the critics pointed out, you don't just walk in the door and these fashions go out the next day. This is months, sometimes years of planning. So the only thing I can take away from it is that this there is some amount of deliberateness about this. Your response? That's the question <laughs> for me is how many steps did it require to go from a sketch on a piece of paper to the shelves? And why didn't someone stop it before? And in the past, I think I've been more willing to give them the benefit of doubt and be just like, oh, this is sort of systemic but casual racism where it went it went from the sketch pad and then the person who was supposed to check at that le- at level one said okay, the person who was supposed to check at level two said okay, and it just found its way at the chain because there were no people of color anywhere up the chain, right? So the institutional racism allows these racist designs to kind of move their way up and there's no check on them. Now, though, Right. In the, again, in this moment, right, when uh, Holocaust denial has come back in style, when white supremacy is part of mainstream politics, in this moment, for it to make it to the shelves, I'm more on your side where I think they're doing it for the controversy and just to get people talking about the brands. Because I, I don't think it's really hurting their sales. We don't have any evidence of mm. that yet, right? So we're almost giving them free advertising by calling them calling so much attention to it. But we can't not denounce it because it's so offensive. <laughs> so, so I think we're doing the right thing by talking about it. But it does seem more to me like marketing strategy at this point than just a quote-unquote innocent mistake. Mm-hmm. Rachel? Yes, I completely agree with that. That's more or less exactly what I was going to say. I mean, it, it brings me down either way, but... I do think that it doesn't hurt their sales if there is some kind of dust up and we could like list a million, right? I mean, that it happens, it happens. And finally, the company apologizes and it apologizes, you know, on Twitter and it apologizes wherever. And it's a kind of like upsetting free advertising. But I do think, I think I have to think that's part of it. Will we see it again? I guess that's my yes, question. Yes, we have. We're not. This is not over. But, you know, th- there was a lot of pushback this time. I mean, public pushback um, to the point that I, I know you said it hadn't affected their sales, but I do know people have said, you know, that's it for me. I'm not buying any of these products. I don't have to. And maybe I'm only one person, but I'm making a statement about it every time yeah. their name comes up. Yeah. But they're like a bunch of people. It's just I, I don't know what it is. It's like first of all, it just sticks in their head. Mm-hmm. And, in the, and then the company always at a certain point apologizes. I mean, if we sat here, we could think of so many examples, and I don't know why. So, so 
if we sat here, we could think of all these examples and the companies would have learned from the examples. Allegedly. No. Oh, you mean for real? For real. Yeah. Right. No, okay. I'm saying they sh- they would yeah, have learned. Have. They yes. definitely would have. If and- they had responded and done something. No, really. no, no. They oh. respond. That what they learned, I guess, was mm. that okay, it's terrible for a little while, and then sales go up. Got you. And okay. so I think otherwise mm. they wouldn't be doing it at this point because mm. we've had many, many conversations about stuff like this socially. You know. I, what I, I guess the thing that really gets me is for the people to say. On every level, I didn't know it yeah. was offensive. Yeah, that's yeah. just not. That's just so. That's just not viable. Yes. I mean, it's just not. And that and that actually also supports, you know, what we're saying about like they they like the attention that they get. It's a kind of free advertising, and even if it's just that the name of the company is floating in their head, you know, that's good. And I think there's also been a history of this kind of thing at, on runway shows. Like mm-hmm. there, so sometimes the the clothes are on the rack, right? And that becomes a, more, a a much bigger story. But there are all kinds of issues, like with runway shows, where models are are dressed in ways that are. Um, sort of invoking ideas about um, homelessness or poverty, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of p- provoking uh, a response based on that depiction. Or cultural appropriation, where they're dressed in quote-unquote ethnic ways, right? On these, on these runway shows. A- and then there's a pushback from maybe some people in the industry, but maybe the public doesn't get wind of it. This is so in your face, right? That it, that it really does reach a level of offense that, that can't be acceptable anymore. It's well, I, I just will point out that with regard to Gucci, it, it, Gucci's uh, label was all in a lot of hip-hop records. A number of those hip-hop artists have already said, oh, no, uh, we are telling all of our fans, and they have millions, this is not well, the deal. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I hope yeah. that works. All right. Well, I hate to end on that note, but I appreciate your insight. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. (laughs) Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, as a kid, author Bridgette M. Davis knew not to talk about what her mother did for a living, not to reveal that her mother's business was running the numbers, an illegal underground game of chance. She shares her mother's amazing story in her new memoir, The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Now it can be told. Years after Fannie Davis ran one of the most successful underground lotteries in Detroit, her secret is out. In her loving memoir, author Bridget M. Davis tells the story of her mother, Fanny, who with grit, grace, and giving back, ran a legitimate business that just happened to be illegal. The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers is a compelling mix of family story and cultural history, and it's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Author Bridget M. Davis joins me now. Welcome, Bridget. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I am delighted. What a wonderful, wonderful book and memoir. Everybody's going to love it. I'm just going to put that on the table right now. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I, am, I am completely right. <laughs> so let's begin with your just giving us a short bio of who your mother was. My mom was really a native of Nashville, Tennessee, born in 1928, who, as a very young woman in her 20s, decided, like millions of African Americans, to migrate north. She, my dad, my three oldest siblings all came to Detroit, you know, so my mom and and all of them could have more liberties, basically. They just wanted more liberties. And so they thought the North was the place for that. And when she got here, she realized that was not the case and basically figured out how to make a way out of no way. So what she decided to do over time, and then, you know, she was excellent at it. One of two women, you point out, at one point in Detroit, running what is called the numbers game. So now explain what the numbers is are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the numbers, I tell folks that pretty much any African-American over a certain age, maybe 50, has heard of or knows about, knows someone who played the numbers. That's how ubiquitous they have been in black communities, even though they've been underground. So it's essentially a precursor to the legal lottery that we all know. That's what the numbers are. They give folks an opportunity to place a bet and play a three-digit number for any amount they want and have the opportunity to possibly actually win 500 to 1 odds. So if someone plays, say, for instance, 692 for a dollar, if that number is the winning number, if it comes out, as we say, then that person could win $500. So imagine that experience of playing the numbers across many, many, many communities throughout the country, and you have the numbers underground economy. So let's take a listen from a piece, because I, I, believe me, I've tried to figure out how to play it, so I would have lost all the time, <laughs> <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Here's a piece on page 64 where you talked about the two games that were uh, prevalent at that time uh, in the numbers, because there were, there were two that you could play, and a little explanation of, of, of how it worked. The winning numbers came from two different sources. The Pontiac number came from actual racing forms based on results from pre-selected racetracks, from the fairgrounds at New Orleans to Aqueduct in New York to Washington Park outside Chicago. And bettors could compute it themselves. All the racetrack payoffs for win, place, and show in the first four races were added up. The first number at the left of the decimal point became the first of the three winning digits. This process was repeated to get a total of the parimutuel winning payoffs for the first five races, and the number to the left of the decimal point became the second winning number. The process was carried out a third time for the winning payoffs total in the first six races, again using the number to the left of the decimal. Those three tabulated digits became the first Pontiac winning number. The second three-digit winner was compiled similarly. The winning digit for the sixth race was always used as the first digit. The race payoffs for the seventh race were totaled, and the digit to the left of the decimal point became the second winning digit. This formula was repeated for the eighth race, and numbers operators 
had their second three-digit winning number. On a given day, for example, 692 and 281 or 784 and 431 could be the winning numbers for Pontiac. I tell you, and that's my guest, <laughs> Bridgette M. Davis, uh, reading from her memoir, The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. I tell you, Bridgette, I just lose. I could not figure that out. <laughs> you really have to be on your game. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's important is that it not be easy to do because the idea was that you didn't want people figuring it out too easily because they could somehow maybe cheat and share that winning number before it was officially announced. So the point of your book and looking back on this and your mother at the center of it is that here was your mom who not only was on top of the game, she was brilliant at it. And Mm -hmm. um, she managed to do this game underground, raise five Mm -hmm. children. So talk a little bit about how you came to understand that your mother was quite the entrepreneur. I believe I intuited it even as a child, before I knew that word, before I understood that she was rare. I always knew she was special. I had seen my friends' moms, and I knew my mother was different. But it was only later that I began to understand, as I matured, just how amazing she was and that what she was doing was the equivalent of, in another context, what a CEO might be doing. And so that that came along with my own maturation. But I watched her work all the time, and I loved it. I loved watching her count money, figure out calculations on that adding machine, tell people their bills. You know, I just thought, wow, she's incredible. And it's very much like an entrepreneurship in that she banked. She was the bank. So she had to risk something every day. And she wasn't working with a lot of money. And there was always a chance that it could all be blown out because let's say two or three people or even maybe one person won big. And then then there she is with nothing. She has to start a game. Absolutely. It was risky. She was essentially self-employed. There were many, many, many bookies in the numbers. You could be a bookie simply by sitting at your kitchen table and taking, say, three customers' bets. That makes you a bookie. You then turn those bets into a banker. So your job is really to be the intermediary. You don't have a lot of risk. But my mom was the banker, and so all those bets came to her, which meant, yes, she got the lion's share of the proceeds, but she also was responsible for paying out those 500 to 1 odds. So thousands and thousands of dollars could go out of the household on any given day because she owed her customers the winnings that they got from playing. So yeah, it was risky. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Bridgette M. Davis, whose latest book is The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club.
Now, this, as we've been talking about, could just have been a story about the interesting game of numbers, uh, the (laughs) illegal uh, gambling uh, game. But what makes your memoir so fabulous are the remembrances, not only as your mom as this incredible entrepreneur at a time when what she was doing was quite risky and illegal, um, but also it's a beautiful family story. And it's set against the backdrop of what was happening in Detroit and also in the rest of the country. And I think that's the thing that will draw a lot of readers because you have just this rich cultural context and you set your mom's story and your family story into that. Why why did you uh, feel that that was necessary to do? Because you could easily have just done a story about your mom and, and her story and your family. Right. I suspect the reason it took a decade almost to really research and report and interview people and create and craft this story is because I always saw it as more. I didn't know how I would do it, but it felt to me that it wasn't just a memoir. It wasn't just a story of my mother and our family. I couldn't talk about her in my mind unless I explained the context in which she found herself, which meant I had to talk about what the numbers were and give that whole context and history. I had to talk about Detroit and where she found herself when she migrated north and what the city meant. And I had to talk, you know, about where we were as a culture in mid-20th century America. To me, they were all really necessary and synergistic and, and integrated. And so, yeah, that was how I understood it. And honestly... I understood, too, that I was writing about someone who was technically doing something illegal. And so that invites judgment. I can't stop people from judging her. But once I committed to writing her story, I was determined to make sure people understood the world she found herself in. And then you can decide how you feel about her. But that was really what was going on for me when I decided how to write the book. And in fact, Bridgette, you you were shaped um, by the secrecy that you had to maintain throughout your young life and the rest of your life about your mother's business. So it it really shaped how you framed the story and how you carried this with you and how you lived it, actually. It's very palpable in the book, and we who read it, we get that. That was a lot. Talk about that a bit, if you will. Yeah, it was my normal, and so I didn't fully appreciate what it meant to hold that secret. I just understood that I had to keep it. We never talked about not talking about it, but it was a visceral understanding. Of course, my mom would say all the time, you know, no good can come from you running your mouth. I mean, (laughs) that was something that I heard often, so I understood that there was no value in blabbing. But I also didn't feel any tension to do it. I didn't feel compelled. It wasn't a hard secret to keep. It was really just understood that telling was beyond risky because not only could authorities find out, but we could make ourselves vulnerable to robbery, for instance. And we could lose our livelihood. You know, we could lose our wonderful middle-class lives. So, yeah, I just understood not to tell. Now, That does beg the question, why did I hold that secret so long, even after I didn't have to? That's another story. (laughs) Um, Have you answered that question for yourself? I've been trying. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that I really reached a point where 
I thought it wasn't worth the risk of people misunderstanding her. My love for my mom, as anyone who's read the book probably can tell, was so deep and so powerful that it didn't seem worth the risk until it suddenly became too important to not tell. Once I understood what she had accomplished, I felt remiss for not sharing that with the world. And suddenly it seemed as though, well, you know, I'll just try to make sure people don't misunderstand her, but it's bigger and more important now to tell it than to keep the secret. Let's take another listen from your book. Go to page 145. The end is, one day I decided to organize Mama's Numbers. That's actually 146. Okay, Okay, never mind. Clearly I don't know numbers. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. One day, I decided to organize Mama's number-running materials and went through the house gathering everything together into one shallow cardboard box. I was enamored of my own organizational skills and decided to add one final touch. On the side of the box, using bright pink nail polish, I carefully painted in boxy letters Mama's Numbers. I proudly show this to my mother, impressed with myself for remembering the possessive apostrophe. She took one look and said, you can't put my business out in the street like that. Looking back, this was the moment when I became consciously aware that I must keep my admiration for my mother's work a private experience. Before, I had known to keep her livelihood a secret, but hadn't yet formed an opinion of, felt any pride in, what Mama actually did for a living. Now I understood that my pride for her also had to be kept secret, as did all the evidence of her work. Chastened, I took my black magic marker and scratched out what I had painted onto the box. And after that episode, I began shoving things into drawers away from visitors' view. Yet, to my delight, Mama continued to keep all her paraphernalia in that box, which ended up permanently perched atop a Louis XV-style chair in her bedroom. If I looked closely, I could still see the pink letters I had painted beneath the blackout marker, And whenever I passed by, I would chant to myself, incantation style, Mama's numbers, Mama's numbers, Mama's numbers. That's my guest, Brigitte M. Davis, whose latest book is The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So, Two things I want to make sure people understand, that your mom provided for you all, your family, in a way that was way above the lifestyle uh, and (laughs) livelihood of most other people, uh, black folks anyway at that time, who were struggling at a different level. When you say middle class, you lived a middle class lifestyle that, you know, would have been unusual for many people, unless they had inherited money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about how you perceive that at the time, and then now as you look back, understanding, you know, what that meant. It's interesting because on the one hand, yes, I was aware that I was a little girl with a dozen pairs of shoes in the first grade, and that that was a lot. 
and that my family had those luxuries of being able to go out to eat for dinner and my mom would go on vacations. I knew that that was, as they say, extra. But two things really helped to offset that experience. And the first is that my mom was so generous. She was known for her generosity. And so it felt as though we were sharing that largesse with the community, with the people in our world, so that folks were always coming by to have food, and she was giving gifts to people and loaning folks money and buying this kid some clothes. And so it was a wonderful way to be indulged and not really feel you were better than anyone. And I think that that was really wonderful. I know my mom was very consciously doing that. Her idea of wealth was to live well and share it. That was her attitude. The other thing is that we lived in a unique city. People really don't understand Detroit still. Detroit was largely black. I'm going to put that number at 85, 90% in the 60s and parts of the 70s, thanks to white flight. But also we had a thriving auto industry that was employing blacks and lofting them into the middle class. The other piece of that is when that white flight occurred, all those beautiful homes in Detroit were left for blacks to purchase. We lived in great homes. So all my friends and family members had nice houses. So we were a little more, we were a little extra, but we weren't unique. People lived well in Detroit back in the day. So the other thing that happened, um, which just was an amazing the way that you explain this and its impact on both your mom's business and, again, because you have the expanded context of really what was happening in the world, was the introduction of state-sponsored lotteries. Yes. In essence, legal lotteries. And for a while, your mom figured out how to thrive even with that going on. But that was a big change. That was huge. And it happened in stages. The legal lottery began in 1972 in Detroit, in Michigan, And at that point, it was a weekly drawing. And so it was not similar to the numbers at all. You could not choose your own digits. Um, You could only play for a certain amount of money. Um, You know, you had to wait for that weekly drawing. So people didn't see it as competition. My mom didn't lose business at first. But then in 1977, the Michigan Lottery Commission got around to its actual goal which was to be in direct competition with the numbers. I mean, they stated it publicly. And so at that point, they literally mimicked what already existed. They just took it over whole cloth in terms of how they structured these daily numbers that people could play through their legal lottery. And that was problematic for my mom, mostly because of one aspect. That legal lottery was able to actually announce its winning numbers on the local TV news station every evening. And so everyone knew the winning numbers at the same time every day. No crazy convoluted racetrack calculations were needed. And it turned out people, even my mother's customers, loved that. They loved it. And that began to really draw customers away from her until she landed on a brilliant idea. She just decided if you can't beat them, join them. And she began to use the legal lottery's winning numbers as the winning numbers in her underground 
numbers business. <laughs> I thought it was And brilliant. it was so <laughs> successful. <laughs> that was really pretty amazing. <laughs> so much of your book resonates with me, and I'm sure with many other people, because I love a mother-daughter story. And this is definitely mm-hmm. a love letter uh, to your mom. And it reminded me of my mother in many ways. But it also, as an African-American woman and a part of this cultural history, I wanted to know in my own family, do people play the numbers? So I spent all day yesterday, my father's <laughs> long gone, but he was a gambler. He played a lot of the state lotteries. He was all into mm-hmm. that. And apparently my father never played it. I did hear about it in the barbershop because he used to take me with him, you know, just vaguely. I sort of knew what it was, but I didn't really know what it was. He apparently, according to my cousin Charles, was a little bit too wary of it. Uh, So he just (laughs) played the state lottery. But it's interesting because I've been asking. But my cousin in New Orleans, he said everybody played in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially before you had the legal option. Exactly. So that's been a fascinating history trip for me. Here's a question for you. What would you think your mother would have been had there been none of these sort of limitations to what she was able to do when she first arrived in Detroit and tried to figure out how she could use her skills, and she had some, to take care of her family? It's a great question, and I would just have to be guessing at it, right? Because Mm -hmm. my mother was multi-talented. She loved history. She had a fascination with W.E.B. Du Bois. Part of me thinks that if life had worked out for her, she could have fulfilled her dream, which was to go to Vanderbilt University because she'd grown up in Nashville. And maybe she would have studied history. She was really that fascinated by it and a voracious reader. That was one path. My mom, a lot of people did not know this, was also writing a book. So she had the natural storytelling skills that she could have translated into becoming a writer if life had turned out differently. But yes, she loved her entrepreneurial skill. She had learned that from her own father. And so probably if I chose something, I would imagine that she would have run a business, a small legitimate business. Hmm. And I think it would have been something that would have helped other people because that was her consistent interest and thrust in life, right? She had options. She could have had options. Well, you told her story well, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Bridget M. Davis is the author of The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It is available in bookstores and online now. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.